brothers and sisters. Do you know that you're loved by God? I don't mean that in a cliche way. I want you to think about the week behind us and all the evidences undeniable of God's love for you. Did you have food to eat? And did you have a place to sleep? Did you have warmth around you when it was cold outside? Do you have people that love you and people that you love? Did you enjoy a good cup of coffee this week? Every little smile and moment of joy, every fond memory that came your way, a gift from God. Did he meet you in sadness? Did he give you comfort? Did he give you strength when you were out of it? There you found God's love for you. Has he given you a church, brothers and sisters that love you, a place to sit in the gospel and be edified? Did he give you an extra hour of daylight today? Praise God, he did. He loves you so much. He gave you a son to die on the cross in your place for your sin. His forgiveness overwhelms. You stand overwhelmed by his mercy. He's caring for your soul. He's sanctifying you. He's urging you on. He loves you so much. You're loved by God. Another sign of his love for you is the gift of the book of Micah. So if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open to Micah chapter 2. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Micah chapter 2 on page 823. Uh, While you're turning there, I want to uh, encourage you, if you missed it last week, um, we provided for you an overview of the book of Micah on this little sheet, as well as a fantastic map uh, that covers the second half of chapter one, but it gives you just the good layout of the land where Micah lived and where he completed his ministry. So there are more of these outside, I think on one of the tables, just right outside the sanctuary doors. So grab one and take it with you and uh, use it uh, on Sunday mornings when we study or in your own personal reading. Um, I've benefited greatly from this. I think you will also. I'm glad that we can make it available for you. Uh, But we're in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 today. Why should we study the book of Micah? Because it, it has so many strong words in it and really heavy themes. Uh, if you were just to pick some random book of the Bible to study, you might not choose the book of Micah. It doesn't leave us shouting praise like Psalm 150 does, and it doesn't take us to the heights like Romans 8 does, and it doesn't give us visions of glory like Revelation 21 does. So why read something so heavy when you have the option to read other parts of the Bible that are more upbeat and more positive? Well, here's why. Because God grows us, not just by adding to our strength, but also by exposing the sin that lingers within us. The book of Micah is like a spiritual MRI machine that examines deep into the recesses of our character to reveal the sin that we've grown comfortable with or the sin that we have justified, even sin that we may not even be aware of. And so that is a difficult process, and sometimes it takes difficult words to encourage us to shine the light of the gospel on the darkness of our sin. Wouldn't you like to be more aware of your own sin? Wouldn't you like to be more alert to its presence 
so you could combat it more successfully. You could repent uh, more regularly. You could walk in the ways of Christ and His holiness on a more regular basis. Wouldn't you like to have greater freedom from your sin? Well, Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 helps us with this. If I were to ask you to make a top 10 list of the worst sins possible, what would you put on that list? We might be able to guess some of the more common ones. Here's the really bad, bad sins. But I wonder, would the sin of coveting make your top 10 list of the worst sins possible? It made God's top 10 list. Might not make yours, but it made God's top 10 list. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. It reads like this in the book of Exodus. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting was one of the great sins that brought God's judgment on Israel and Judah. And I have to believe that if this sin was such a danger to God's people then, it remains a serious threat to us today, but we may not even be aware of it. I mean, when is the last time you addressed coveting in your own life? When in prayer you said, God, save me from my coveting. Forgive me for my coveting. When's the last time that when you worried about the choices, say, your children might make or your grandchildren might make, were you concerned about their relationship to coveting? Have you prayed that for them? I don't know that we have. And so it shows how much we need this word from Micah chapter 2 today. My goal today is to shine a gospel light on the sin of coveting so that we will heed Micah's warning and rest in God's encouragement. And Micah shows us two realities about the sin of coveting. I want you to follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Micah is speaking to powerful people in the nation of Judah Mike is the primary speaker in these five verses, though he reports the words of God. He speaks the words of God. And here's what Micah says. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, We are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people. How he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Uh, one thing you may recall is um, uh, in my tips for studying the book of Micah, I encourage you that wherever you study, know who the speaker is, who the audience is, and know where you are in the book. And that's, again, where this chart comes in handy. If you were using this, you would find that chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, falls in a section that we would call evidence. This is evidence against God's people. Chapter 1 is all about judgment. Chapter 2 begins with evidence. There certainly is judgment mixed in, but here God is exposing the sin of his people and identifying the reasons why he is bringing this horrific judgment on them. 
And so Micah identifies the sin of coveting as a primary reason for God's judgment on his sinful people. And Micah comes at coveting from two different directions. First is an expose of its danger, and then second is a promise of God's response. And so let's first look at the destruction caused by coveting. Micah explains this sin to us by showing us the destruction that's caused by coveting in verses 1 and 2. And so the first two verses of this passage detail God's charges against the wicked people who have power. And Micah describes their sinful planning and actions in detail. In verse 1, they dream up wickedness. They plan evil on their beds. In the morning, they accomplish their evil plans because the power is in their hands. Look at how brazen their actions are. Their planning was done at night, and the action is taken during the day. Now, I don't know a lot about scheming wicked plans or general nefarious activity, but I would assume that the bad guys would plan during the day, and then they would carry out their evil deeds in the night, but not these people here. Here's how brazen they are. They plan at night and they carry out their wicked actions in the daylight in front of God and everyone. They fear nobody. They're not afraid of being found out. They're going to enact these wicked plans against other people without any sort of hesitation. And it's important to note this detail at the end of verse 1. Micah says that the power is in their hands. So by whatever standard you measure power... The people who are perpetrating this sin are people of authority. Uh, they, they have this power given to them either well, from some source, uh, but they have this power. They use it for their own benefit, and they use it against the people who are under their power. So it's possible that this power was used in ways that could be argued as legal. Here's a very likely scenario that happened often in Micah's day. Uh, a landowner would have gone into debt. They may have defaulted on that loan, and then they would have lost their home and their land. And you think, well, that's just kind of the way loans and collateral work. But here's the problem. This would have been a predatory loan. It would have been a predatory loan uh, held by a member of the covenant community, taken by a member of the covenant community, And the purpose of the loan was never to help the person taking the loan. It was always about stealing from them their home, their land, all that they had. So the person in authority, the person with power could say, well, legally, I have the right. This person willfully entered into this financial arrangement with me. It's my legal right to get paid back for the money that I loaned to them. But that loan was always legalized theft. They have the power to take. They prey upon people. They take from them by the power that's given to them. It didn't matter that the letter of the law said that the person in power had the right. The law of God clearly identified these actions as wicked. Listen to me. Legalized sin is still sin. These people acted sinfully, thinking that the legalization of it made it okay for them. Well, look at how Micah describes these wicked actions in verse 2. He says, they covet fields and seize them. 
They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. So they covet and they seize. They desire and they take. They take fields and houses. Now we know enough culturally to know that it's a big deal to lose your land and your house. But you and I don't really understand the deep significance of that loss to Micah's original audience. In Micah's day, your land and your property was likely home to as many as three or four generations of your family. This wasn't a culture where one day you move out of mom and dad's house and you go and, and find your own place. Your family has been allotted a portion of land. And that land is yours, intended forever. And so you live on the land that your father and your grandfather farmed, and then other generations after you are also going to take care of that land. And so when you lose the land, when you lose your home, there were profound economic consequences for the family. Often the only solution was to enter into a form of debt slavery. It was the only way to survive. Not only were there economic implications, there were significant theological implications as well. Because that land was a gift from God. And as a result of His generosity, people could thrive and flourish on their own particular portion of land, enjoying God's blessings as long as they could and for generations to come. So without land, an Israelite would become economically and spiritually rootless certainly financially broken. To lose land and house meant to lose everything. As one writer put it, these people were de-sold. Right? They're not just losing property. They're losing their very identity, the very promise of God to them. And not only for the person in question, but for generations to come. Now, of all the words that Micah could use to describe this criminal action, he calls it coveting. What's the meaning of the word. Let me give you a very simple definition of the word coveting that will serve us well today. Coveting is this, it is the desire to have something or someone that is not yours. It's the desire to have something or someone that is not yours. It's the desire that precedes the taking. Just as hatred is murder in the heart, just as lust is adultery in the heart, so coveting is theft in our hearts. Where you see the word coveting used in the Bible, you will almost always see another word with it that signifies the taking, the seizure of the thing that's coveted. These two verbs go hand in hand. Coveting is the desire that precedes the taking or the theft of the thing or the person that you want. Coveting is not the same as wanting or needing a thing. You may want a new car. You may want a new job. You may want daily bread. God has created us with desires that have to be fulfilled by Him. But when we desire that thing or person that is not ours, we are guilty of sin in the wanting. So don't think just because you aspire to something different or you plan to make some purchase or do something that you're guilty of coveting or that you are inherently dissatisfied or discontented with what the Lord has given you. The want is not automatically sin, but when we fixate our wants on the things that belong to other people or the people that belong to other people, 
then we are walking in the ways of hell. Why is coveting so bad? Well, it's bad, first of all, because it's an idolatrous rebellion against God. It's not just like some misplaced desire, like, oh, I'll just redirect that. It is a ripping of your very relationship with God. Because in our coveting, we are rejecting what God has provided for us. God has given me all of these things, but I'm saying this is not enough. We crave what God has given someone else. So we're rejecting what God has given to us, and instead we're saying, nah, I want what they have over there. We're also taking what God meant to be a blessing to another person. Here's God's blessing to them in some material way or some relational way, and we're saying, no, I I want that blessing to be for me. And in the very act of coveting, we are acting as our own God, using our power to get what we crave. God has given, God has blessed, I'm rejecting that in place of what I have decided is best for me, the thing that I want, the thing that I will get by any means necessary. It's an idolatrous rebellion against God. You will frequently see coveting and idolatry named in the same sentence throughout the Bible. Not only is it a rebellion against God, but coveting is a wicked action against another person. We are valuing things over people when we covet. We're saying that the one made in the image of God is less valuable to me than the thing that they possess. I want the thing. I value that over the person. And so we are taking actions that harm people. We are victimizing people by taking the thing that we crave. So when we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough or good enough to care. Our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us. You haven't given me enough. haven't given me what I deserve. You've given such things to this person. They don't deserve it. I deserve that. I want it. Look, there's a reason that do not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. Not because it's the least of them, but because it's a fitting summary of everything that's come before. It's impossible to covet and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's impossible to covet and to love your neighbor as yourself. One neighbor described the Tenth Commandment this way. He said, it can seem strange that the Ten Commandments start with such lofty ideals I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, and ends with a prosaic whimper. Stop looking at that donkey. But do you see how the two are connected? God is saying, I'm the only God you need. Don't turn to Baal, don't turn to statues, and don't turn to animals or friends or abilities either. Let nothing else capture your gaze and affections ahead of me. So when we covet, We are tearing apart our relationship with God, and we are destroying people. When we see it named in Micah chapter 2, we should feel horror. This is the sin that was among God's people? This is the action that was taking place among covenant people? We should be horrified, but we're not. We just read past it, or we think, man, I need something lighter in my Bible reading, which shows how out of step we are with what God cares about. 
Now, you might push back and you could say, well, Cody, that's just the Old Testament talking. But I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. He said, every sexually immoral or impure or covetous person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It was serious to Paul. It was serious to Micah. It's serious to God. It must be serious to us. Coveting is not some old-timey, quaint sin. It is the very evidence of idolatry. It is the practice of victimizing. Coveting is hell with us. Micah is clear about the destruction caused by coveting. First paragraph puts it in our faces. Here is this horrific sin. You must be fearful of it. Woe to you who practice it. But the second part of our passage describes the destruction of the covetous. First part, the destruction caused by coveting. The second part, the destruction of the covetous in verses 3 to 5. Verses 3 to 5 describe God's judgment against those who covet and destroy the lives of others. Now, do you remember how verse 1 started? Verse 1 began this way. It said, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their bed. They're crafting plans. But these wicked people aren't the only ones planning. Look at what God says in verse 3. Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. They have their plans, and so does God. Their plans are in plain view, but God's plans will come swiftly and surprisingly. Their plans are for their profit, but God's plans are for their destruction. One of our most loved verses in the Old Testament it might be framed hanging on the wall of your home this morning is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your well-being to give you a future and a hope. Similarly, here in verse 3, God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to pour out the judgment you deserve. Verse 4 then describes the future judgment to come. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, We are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people. How he removes it from me, he allots our fields to traitors. The grammar here is a little clunky. The best way that I make sense of clunky grammar in the book of Micah, an explanation that is compelling to me, is that in the places where the grammar gets wonky, we have Micah getting emotional. He feels the weight and the pain of the message that God has given him to deliver. We saw it in chapter 1. I think we see it here again in chapter 2, verse 4. But here's what I think is happening in verse 4. What's being described is someone mocking the formerly powerful person when that person meets with the judgment of God. So this is a, a for this audience, this was a present tense judgment, a, an in this life type of judgment. An enemy nation was going to come and wipe them out and take all of their 
homes and property, the things that were theirs legitimately and those things that they took illegitimately. And so when that judgment would come, then those formerly powerful people would be taunted by their destroyers or they might be taunted by the people they formerly destroyed. And the words of the taunt were probably the very words spoken previously by the people they victimized. And so in verse 4, the, the quoted lines there are likely from the person who is doing the taunting. They could also reflect the powerful person's state of mind in that moment, but I think it's proper to read them with a mocking tone, a sarcastic tone, uh, as, as if they're mocking the powerful person who is left utterly destitute. We are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people. That, that sort of tone there is what I take from verse 4. It is derision. It is shame. It is leaving a suffering person in their suffering and rubbing in the fact that this is what you deserve by your actions against God and your neighbors. They will lose the lands and the homes that were originally theirs by God's gift, as well as all those that they took from others. They'll suffer not just economic loss, but they will suffer uh, every possible human shame. They lose all semblance of honor. Their power and their statue, stature is remo removed. Uh, they are mocked to their death by their oppressors and by those they used to oppress. But their loss is more than just immediate. There's also an eternal sense to their loss. It shows up in verse 5. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. In this one brief sentence, Micah says that in the immediate future, the land will be lost to an enemy nation as an act of God's judgment. Sometime later, the land will be returned to God's people. And at that time, when the land is divided once again among God's people, those who coveted will not be included. They are excluded from the very covenant family of God. There's a way in which this passage can be really profound encouragement for you today. If you've ever been the victim of another person's coveting, and if that person has never repented and asked forgiveness from God and you, then this passage should be encouragement for you. God knows what you've suffered. God knows what you still suffer, but a day is soon coming when your suffering will end but their suffering will never end. All that was taken from you will be restored and more, not just lands and homes, but safety, joy, purity, innocence, life everlasting for the children of the King. But if you're a person who has used or is using your power over another person, you who scheme and take and destroy, woe to you. Be very afraid. 
This is a passage that should make you crumble in fear of the God who knows you by name, and he knows your schemes and plans. There is a judgment day coming for you. Unless you respond to the grace of God in this warning. You see, there's good news even for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul runs down a list of the types of people, types of sinful people who will not inherit God's kingdom. That list includes those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, thieves, and those who covet. But then Paul says this in verse 11, And some of you used to be like this. Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to those who bear the name of Christ. He gives them this list of people who will not be in the kingdom of God. Coveters among them. And he says, you used to be this. Some of you used to be this type of person. But you're not anymore. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So while coveting is an unthinkable sin, it is not an unforgivable sin. And if you will turn from that sin, trust in Jesus, then the judgment and mocking you deserve is put on Jesus at the cross. Justice is satisfied by Christ's death. The sinless Son of God died even for the sin of coveting. And three days after He died, He rose again. Coveting is dead. And those who belong to Jesus are dead to it. And He enables us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And having turned to Jesus for your salvation, there will be a future day when God gathers his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Your name will be call, called out and you will receive your allotted portion and you will dwell in the land of the Lord forever. There is grace for you in Jesus Christ. So in Micah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, we learn of the destruction caused by coveting as well as God's destruction of those who covet. And when we read these more difficult pieces of Scripture, our tendency is almost automatically to apply it to other people. When I talk about people who have power and abuse it, you automatically have some names and some faces that flash in your mind from various arenas of life. And we always think about them, those people who do those things. But that would be a foolish way for us to orient ourselves to this passage. Because the key word in this passage comes in verse 2. It is they. And we are they. Power is abused in so many different ways. Coveting takes place in so many different ways. We must not think that the Tenth Commandment was only about someone other than ourselves. Micah has taken us beneath all of the layers of this injustice to the really nasty stuff. And the root of this injustice is coveting. And there is a God who sees it. 
He sees what you ponder in your bedroom at night, the secret plans you make, and the raging discontentment at the core of your life that drives it all. And the fact that you've done nothing like the things in this text doesn't mean that you are more virtuous. It may only mean that you've lacked the opportunity. So how do we combat coveting in our lives? I want to give you two tips that I think will help combat coveting. These are not meant to be the sum total or just the, the full throttle strategy against coveting, but it is a place for us to start. And there are two other Bible verses that give us great strength over the sin of coveting. How do we combat coveting in our own lives? First of all, we need to strive to be content in Christ. Be content with Christ. Hebrews 13, 5 Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. So rather than craving, desiring, wanting more stuff, things that are not your own, people who are not your own, instead, be content with Christ. When that old miser rears up in your soul, remind yourself, I have everything in Christ. I lack nothing in Him. There's no good thing that's been withheld from me. God's love has been poured out in abundance to me. I have Christ, therefore I have everything. And root yourself again in the passages of the Bible, of the Bible where you see Christ's love on display for you. Sit in front of the cross and sit with Him in prayer and see the power of His love poured out and find your contentment in Christ. Anytime you want the thing that is not yours, the thing God has not given you, check the craving, check the wanting by looking to Christ. A second way you can combat coveting in your own life is by conforming your desire to God's. You want to desire what God desires. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. That doesn't mean if you, if you seek God first, then he will give you all these material things that you crave. That's not, of course, what it means. Because he's our treasure. You seek him, you, you get the treasure, you get everything in him. And so you want to conform your desires to God's desires. You want to want what God wants. You want to be satisfied in what God gives Rather than craving material things or craving other people, instead, you should crave righteousness. When the desires come up, when coveting begins to boil in you, you can say, I'm not made for this. I'm made for Him. I want to desire what God desires. I'm going to seek His righteousness. And when you are content with Christ, and when you desire what God desires, then your bedtime routine will change from scheming in the night to singing in the night a song of praise like this one in Psalm 63. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do not 
want to look in our spiritual mirror and see this nasty sin staring back at us. But because you love us, you give us every good thing, you also push us in our sanctification, and so you shine your gospel light, your holy truth on our lives to expose the sin that we carry. Lord, we confess that we have not treated the sin of coveting with the seriousness that it deserves. We have treated it lightly, left almost invisible to our spiritual evaluations. But God, thank you that in your goodness you hold this poison in front of us so that we would recognize it in our own lives. So Lord, lead us in your kindness to repentance from this sin that we would crave what you crave, desire what you desire. We would pursue you and be content in all that we have in Christ. Lord, convict us when we put things above people. Convict us when we crave people who are not ours. Protect us. Save us from sin. And Lord, I'm grateful that your mercy and grace are huge for us when we have given ourselves wholesale to this sin. Lord, rescue the one who covets today. Father, bring salvation to the one who turns to Jesus Christ and trusts in him so that their testimony can be like that of the church in Corinth. That's who I used to be, but this is who I am, a child of the King. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.